Hey everybody, Brian Zane here with another edition of Wrestling with Regret. Wait a minute, hang on. Where am I? This isn't this isn't YouTube. This isn't the Cinnabon. Where the hell am I? Gaming Street Irregulars? Well, I know a thing or two about gaming and certainly being irregular, but no, this is not my scene. I'm out of here. <laughs> Good evening, good whatever time of day it is when you listen to this. Welcome to Gaming Street Irregulars. My name is James Irish. I am your arcade attendant for today, and joining me is top mechanic Chrissy Harding. Hello! And in the digital recording booth today, we have a special guest. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome one of my oldest friends in terms of length of time at least <laughs> aspiring author and longtime fellow arcade enthusiast Linwood Knight yay well stand clear to closing doors please it's been so long since I've done a podcast <laughs> well we're pretty easy going here so this will be fun yeah th- this is casual now we're not quite going to jump into the main topic just yet because I found something tangentially associated with it that just made my jaw drop at the sheer absurdity of this announcement that came from the Peacock Network yesterday. They're developing a reality TV game show based on Frogger. What? Oh, you haven't seen this yet, have you, Chrissy? No, I have not. I, I've also been extremely busy, and I've been also absorbed by Netflix announcing uh, their new supernatural Sherlock Holmes show called The Irregulars. So, what? And how do we get on this game show? Well, first of all, <laughs> first of all, we would need passports mm. because they're taped in Australia. According well, to the I've always needed. Well, this is this is the kick in the pants I need to get mine. So, <laughs> yeah. According to a news release, Frogger contestants will will not only be dodging treacherous traffic, but will have to leap over snapping gators and hop over hungry hippos to conquer the course. Hopefully, those are animatronics. Last thing we need are genuine. <laughs> Gators or hippos, especially hippos. Good lord, those things are dangerous. Yeah, you don't want to piss off a hippo. You really, really don't. No, that's a really, really bad idea. And they're fast. Like, they are quick. And they don't look it. No, they don't, but they are in water or land. When a hippo wants you, a hippo's going to get you. Yes, very much so. And it being Australia... It being Australia. Mm-hmm. Everything's out to kill you. Yeah. 
Yeah, the, the Frogger obstacle course might be less dangerous than the Australian Outback. But, you know, if we do this, I vote that we kind of make a trip of it. We go to we go and do the Frogger show, and then we could go to Japan, and we can check out the Mario Kart tracks that are there, because they do have, um, in one of the cities, not Tokyo, but one of the other ones, Mario Kart, life-size Mario Kart uh, racing tracks. That, that I've, I've heard of those. And I almost thought you were going to reference the just-opened Super Nintendo World at Universal Studios Japan. No, because I wasn't sure if it was open yet. But if that is open, dude, we so need to go. I have a friend who lives in Tokyo who would totally put us up. At minimum, I believe it's in previews right now. Okay. Well, there's also COVID going on, so. Yeah. My understanding is... Oh, you go ahead, Chrissy. I was like, kind of wait till that calms down a little bit more. Yeah, my understanding is that uh, the United States is going to get the full version of that uh, at the earliest in 2024. That's not that far away. I no. can start saving money for that. Yeah, especially we, we will need to spend save money because that's going to be Orlando, and that ain't cheap. Oh, no. No, no, it's not. But I also have friends in Orlando that we could crash with, too. So, haha. Yeah, Linwood and I have been talking about that for a while now. But keeps getting pushed back thanks to the ongoing global uh, bastard. Yeah, so as a heads up to all my friends who are living in Orlando and Japan, just so you all know, I'm calling in those favors about moving your stuff in college. <laughs> That's a good reason to call in those favors. And rewinding a little bit, I said this to you before. As insane as the Frogger, slash, Frogger game show slash reboot is, it could be worse. True. It could, it could be a Captain N reboot. Oh, yeah. Coincidentally, the Captain N cartoon was, was done by one of the same showrunners behind the Pac-Man cartoon for Hanna-Barbera. I'm a, I was a Captain N fan. Uh, admittedly, I was too when I was a kid, and was just like, "Oh, cool! My my favorite characters are on TV. My favorite characters are on TV," and I just wasn't as critical. No, well, but also with it, it was a show based on what majority of us were like always wanted at that time to have happen. You get sucked into your favorite video game. Exactly. And I mean, granted, it could have been better done and even now when I look back on it like as someone who writes like I look back on it I'm like wow I we could you could there was so much there you could have done so much other stuff you could have pulled out of your hat and crossed over with and you whiffed it essentially but that's gonna be a subject for when uh, Pembroke and I do our upcoming podcast which should be debuting Next week, if everything goes according to plan, you'll hear more about that on Nerd World News on Monday. Because we have a central topic to get to, and and uh, we're actually going to be doing two this day in gaming histories. So we're going to do one right now because it actually coincides with today's topic, our memories of arcade experiences. On this day, February 25th in 1982... Bally Entertainment Corporation and Bally Data Systems. So that is the pinball divisions and the uh, and some of the other companies within Bally merged into one 
consolidated conglomerated company. Now, Midway is one of the, still to this day, one of the major players in coin-operated amusements, though mostly slot machines now. But back then, they were, Bally, Midway, Williams, whatever branch of that group you want to call them, were responsible for a metric crud ton of vintage arcade and pinball experiences. A, mm-hmm. a lot of which we'll probably be bringing up today. Oh yeah, especially especially with me because that was one of the game that was one of the coin operated games that me and my dad used to play all the time was pinball. And my dad, I'm going and actually um, playing off of the fact that you know that now all what they make is uh, the slot machines. My dad always used to say that casinos were like arcades for adults. No lie detected. Mm-hmm. It's even more true. It's even more true nowadays. Oh my goodness! When I went into like one of the um, casinos up here, they actually had Metal Gear Solid like slot machines. Granted, it was over, me. It was over a year ago. Now. I am not. Sh- I'm not shocked because Konami, God bless their soul, have gone full into. Things like like casinos, pachinko, resorts—that's their business nowadays. Yeah, they, That's where the money is. It, you know what it is, and you can tell. Like my own—that was always my one issue with Konami was um, they only they would follow the money, which is in some senses a good business model. But when you start to sacrifice like storytelling quality of your games, yeah, um, yeah, we there. Hmm. Because they kind of abandoned some of their big franchises and just kind of sold out for the mobile, you know, pay-to-play apps, free-to-play, but pay-to-continue kind of things and the, mm-hmm. and the slot machines. And part of me is like, you used to make the Epic games. What's wrong with you? Like, when you knew Konami was coming out with a game, even back in the 80s or 90s, like, if it had Konami's name on it, you knew it was worth saving up your money to buy. And you know, it's just like, now it's like, what happened to you? <laughs> since, ahead, we are, since we are talking about arcades, the one thing that, since we're bringing up Konami, and we'll probably go into this later, Konami is a big part of arcade history. Probably more so than maybe some people who are maybe a little bit younger or older will not realize. Oh, yeah. Very, very, very true. In fact, Konami was the developer of the, the game we were talking about at the top of the show, Frogger. Mm-hmm. But That's we right, will, they uh, were. Absolutely. We will get a little deeper into that and just about every other arcade topic we can squeeze into an hour's worth of discussion right after this short break. <laughs> talking about arcade memories um and we're kind of reminiscing shut up world um one of the things that when i think of arcades you know when i i think of you know timeout and the basic ones you would find in the mall 
But I don't think people also realize um, one of my favorite, because I got to play a lot of games before they came out, was we used to go to the Canadian National Exhibition, the CNE, that used to be in Toronto, just outside it. And Sega and Nintendo, not on the same years, they would alternate years. One year it would be Sega, one year it would be Nintendo, would actually have an arcade there where you can play upcoming games and they're more popular games. And that's, you know, some of that, some of the way that I got to play some of my new, some of uh, the Super Nintendo games, because it was a very long time before I got access to those. Um, That's interesting. Yeah. And, and that was something because they didn't have that at the New York state fair. Get on that people. Um, And don't at me. Um, But yeah, we used to go to the the Canadian national mission um, every year. And we used to go, you know, we used to go to Toronto all the time, which is why uh, me and uh, me and uh, Northern Bell, <laughs> we that's why I kind of knew some of the places she was talking about, because I'm like, oh, my God, I ran around Toronto. So, but that was ladies those and were arcades. Just, ladies and gentlemen, you just heard a first on this broadcast, the first time Northern Bell has been brought up and I didn't initiate the subject. <laughs> She's my girl. <laughs> But yeah, I mean, they're our girl. They're our girl. Thank you. Or some, or some variation of thereof. You know, that, that's being, my that's my crew. They being female, identifying non-binary. It's you know fellow gamer hyper binary. <laughs> Northern Bell is a fellow gamer in my gamer crew. Yes, there we go. How's that? <laughs> fellow adventures. And that's tangent number two, I think. Uh, something. Hang on, let me get to it. I know I wasn't here for 28 days of CODs play. I kind of got to make up for it. <laughs> okay. So, Lilith, so, talk to me about some of your uh, earliest arcade experiences that you can recall. My earliest arcade experiences? Well, let me try to recall the first time I remember being in an arcade. It was around 1985-86 when we were going down North Carolina because back in the day, we used to go down North Carolina. That's where my parents were. We would have a yearly pilgrimage for either family reunion or Christmas. And the New Jersey Turnpike back in the day was quite a different beast. If you've ever watched Steven Universe, they do talk about this in, in, in sort of a way. Say how the places were kind of gross. They were not lying. They were legitimately kind of gross. But the one thing they had was arcade games. Arcade games up the wazoo. I don't remember the first game I played, but I do remember there was a pinball game there that totally entranced me. And if it weren't for the fact that we needed to make time, I could have spent hours playing that pinball game. I was terrible at it, but it enthralled me. And... From then on, arcades were very much a thing in my life. But the thing is this, is that back in those days, I didn't, re- I didn't really go to arcades often until I was like more than 9 or 10 years old. I got my arcade experiences from the pizza shops, from the laundromats. Like every single place I knew of that was a business, a service business, or a restaurant had an arcade machine. And one of the first arcade machines that I was enthralled by was 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 in 1989. 
the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, like every other kid out there, TMNT was they were the, they were the kings. And when that arcade game came out, I would try and get every chance to play it. What a coincidence. I just wrote a blog on that very game last week. I think that that was the arcade game uh, at Seabreeze that you would see a lineup for. And and kids would just put their quarters up there and they would swap out. When someone died as one of the turtles, they'd step away and then another person would go. And it was just like continuous line of like, you know, preteens and, and, you know, young, you know, preteens and just going up there. And I don't think we ever beat the game. I don't think we ever did, but you would constantly have people stepping up there to play. Like, I don't recall ever seeing the end of that game, <laughs> but we used to like, we all used to crowd around too, to watch like you were everyone hanging over the cabinet. Like, where are we doing? Where are you going? Come on, get them, get like, and everyone shouting. Like we didn't play ride the rides or if you did, it was cause you couldn't see the screen anymore and you were bored. But like, there was always a continuous line of kids to play that game at Seabreeze. And I just rem- yeah, I remember that, like just sitting there being like, and then when I played it, I'm like, I understand now why everyone's addicted to this game. I kind of don't want to give up my seat. <laughs> <laughs> I did. I was a good player. But I remember my first arcade playing an actual cabinet cabinet was actually in a dive. Um, mm. You know, when it, and it was, um, God, it was, I think... The reunion inn that used to be here down down by my house, they actually did have, they had a pool table. They had kind of like a shuffleboard table, but they called it bowling. So you would kind of play it like, like you would send the thing down and it had lights so that it would say if you hit those pins or not. And then they had a Pac-Man cabinet. And I just remember that was the first time I actually got a chance to play Pac-Man because usually when we try to play it on the Atari, I never got a chance to play the Atari because my father was always on the Atari. That was kind of the first time I got to play Pac-Man and I stunk at it. Granted, <laughs> if that. your first impression of Pac-Man was the Atari 2600 version, you would not have been getting the full experience. I, and I never actually... like. When it came to the Atari system, like I had to wait until everybody went to bed because my father was constantly on that thing. So I really didn't get to play as I got older and was able to kind of figure out how to unplug it from the TV downstairs and bring it to the upstairs. No, it was upstairs. Plug it, unplug it from the TV upstairs and run downstairs and hide it downstairs and plug it into that TV. That was the only time I got to play that thing. And you had to have it on channel three. With oh a little yeah! Switch thing in the back. You had to switch it, you know, with the little switch in the back that was TV or computer. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I just dated myself. Well, so. Well, there's been a lot of that going around on this podcast, us dating ourselves. How about you, James? What was your first uh, arcade experience? If I had to take a wild guess, it probably would have. It probably would have been one of the timeout arcades over at, uh, if I, probably Marketplace Mall. I don't remember what games they would have had, but it, I, I'm not probably, I'm not even 100% sure what, uh, 
what year it would have been, or even if I had seen games at, of all places, my lo my day camp slash before and after school program uh, facility, Browncroft Day Camp, because, you know, as, as mentioned in the debut episode, they had this barn that they had stocked with some arcade games as a diversion for the older kids. But uh, either way, what I remember about those earliest arca arcade games, you know, the Dig Dugs, the Robotron 2084s, Pac-Man, Q-Bird, and on and on, I they were just like these bright, bold, garish, colorful things, like an ex like a, like a childhood Crayola box of basic colors just exploded on onto a screen and somehow managed to make some semblance of sense. I say semblance of sense because, well, when you look at a game like Pac-Man or Q-Bird, you wonder, how in the world did they come up with some of this stuff? <laughs> what were they smoking? I, I mean, incidentally, I have an idea now what, what they, what, how they came up with those things since I've delved into their history. But, you know, <laughs> those are going to be subjects for the individual uh, podcasts on those specific games and series. I want to circle back right now to something Linwood brought up, experiencing uh, arcade games outside of arcades at pizzerias and laundromats and convenience stores. Basically, any location where you could be expected to be spending a good bit of time, you know, like when you're waiting for a, a pizza to finish cooking or you're waiting for the laundry cycle to wrap up, you can, it would be a very common sight to find video and pinball machines Especially in laundromats, because they already had technicians experienced with dealing with coin-operated devices and the, and the associated machinery. So it was just a natural extension of those businesses. If, if the people were just going to be there anyway, hey, squeeze a few more quarters out of them and get and, and give them something to do. Also, don't forget bowling alleys. I remember the oh. remember the having a couple having several cabinets in the bowling alleys, kind of scattered about. Mm -hmm. Mm hmm. Naturally. Which actually got me in trouble when when year when I was taking bowling lessons because it was on the video games more than I was actually paying attention to the bowling lessons. Oh, I yeah. have ADD. I, I was guilty of that too. But not with the bowling, but with miniature golf. I just got bored of the miniature golf, and I knew in that in that little arcade room to the side they had Double Dragon, and I was eager to play the arcade version of that because it was just that much brighter and bolder and more involved than the NES version, even though, at least to my to my eyes at the time, now I know the NES version is actually somewhat of a deeper game that also lacks the slowdown the arcade version was plagued with. Slowdown on an arcade game! That shouldn't happen! No, that's a point. it should be the other way. Like, you should have the slowdown on the Nintendo, not, not the slowdown on the arcade. Right. Yeah, that's... That's kind of backwards. Yeah. But yet, Double Dragon overcame that... Uh, handicap and that inspired the game you were talking about a moment ago Chrissy Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles and mm. of course scads and scads and scads of others it basically was the trendsetter after Rene after its predecessor Renegade uh, laid out the blueprint mm -hmm. 
Yeah. Yeah, the other one I used to play all the time too was uh, Outrun. Ah. Uh, that was oh, the only yeah. racing. That was the only racing game I was good at until Mario Kart came out. And that leads us directly to one of the probably the biggest of the arcade powerhouses on a global level, Sega. Mm-hmm. Before we even caught a whiff of uh, of like Space Invaders or anything like that, Sega had already been establishing an arcade business in Japan in the mid seventies, both through. I mean, they they were already developing electromechanical games. I mean, you saw one in Jaws, that that little shark arcade game you you spot at one point before the first really bad at- attack amongst a crowd of people. But uh, but then, but you know, Sega was opening up arcades, actual physical arcade locations in Japan around that same time, and so they were able to benefit direct rather immediately from the rise of it, of video games even if some of the initial ones they developed were kind of primitive but when they got to out when they got around to the mid 80s and the rise of developer Yu Suzuka who created Outrun which you just referenced Chrissy mm-hmm. Sega was basically on the path to making games that no home hardware of the time could keep up with. And that is a big part of the history from the mid-80s to the mid-2000s. The technology that Sega was employing at that time was freaking insane. One of, the, one of my most formative experiences at an arcade, and this is, fun time, this is the Fun Time USA era, back where... I can go to Sheepshead Bay on a Saturday or a Sunday and spend like five cents, spend like $20 on video games. One of my biggest life changing experiences was not the first Daytona, Daytona USA 2, which is probably one of what I think is the greatest racing game of all time. The, the graphics, when you first saw it, I mean, the freaking intro. Is one of the all-time great interests of all time. And just playing the game and playing the the easy course. And both with the, the first Daytona and Daytona USA 2 Power Edition. The first Daytona had a forest dome. The first two had a forest dome. It was a basically you were you were basically racing through a res, you were basically racing through a resort. The upgrade power edition was you basically going to a NASCAR race. It was basically Darlington. The Darlington Racetrack. Okay. And I really wish we still had enough arcade cabinets there because just racing that first course, the easy course, and just the way everything sounded, the sound, the music, the the engine, the driving, it felt like you were really in a stock car. And that is part of Sega's history is that they were legitimately doing things that wouldn't have been possible in 92 with virtual racing up until the PS2, Dreamcast, GameCube, Xbox era. Right. And, and you know, you could say the exact same for Yu Suzuka's Super Scalar games. Uh, you could not 
accurately replicate Space Harrier on a Sega Master System or a Famicom or or NES for that matter. And good luck getting that thing to even remotely play closely to the arcade version on a on a British microcomputer like the ZX Spectrum. <laughs> and and you, in that and you actually bring me and to circle things back around to the tail end of that, which you brought up, Linwood, the around the mid two thousands, the beginning of the end for arcades as we knew them. I know I'm kind of jumping a little bit ahead in the timeline, but we should have known that was coming with the rise of the Naomi platform, which was almost a carbon copy of Sega's home Dreamcast hardware. Mm. When, when you could get a pretty much spick and span arcade perfect translation of a game as deep as Marvel vs. Capcom 2 or as outlandish as a Daytona game like you, like you were bringing up why spend the time and the coins in an arcade? This is basically why your modern Dave and Buster's model is either redemption games that either deal out tickets or give you a chance at a at some sort of prize. Good luck getting one of those on a crane game. More on that mm-hmm. in a second. Or they're going to be these big fancy uh, it, uh, cabinets with the with tactile experiences. You know, light gun games with these big rifles you hold or. Or uh, driving games that are sit down, and some might even have hydraulics on them. You know, this the sort of experiences that you still can't necessarily duplicate at home. Arcades need to rely on that novelty in order to turn a profit. Now, yeah, you know, it's not just uh, you can't just rely on people saying, "Oh, somebody's over, up at the Street Fighter Two cabinet. I'm going to go challenge him and see it, see if they're any good." That that isn't a draw anymore. Well, the other thing also too is, I mean, this happened. This slump that arcades are going through now almost happened actually in the early 80s. And one of the most, to me, one of the most beautifully rendered games uh, did save it. Um, and that's Dragon's Lair. And I, we shouldn't, you know, Dragon's Lair, when it came out, it blew away a lot of other arcade games because it actually showed that you didn't need to have like a little pixelated character. You could have beautiful cell drawn graphics on an arcade game. And it had a storyline to it. And people were worried at first that people wouldn't play it because it was the first arcade game that cost 50 cents to play. Uh, that actually, uh, I, I hate to be the well actually guy, but well, actually Christian holds that distinction. <laughs> Which one? Pole position. Oh, that's true. When did pole position come out? Uh, a couple year, about a, a year and a half or so before Dragon's Lair. Okay, so it came but out. You are, still on the, you are still on the right track with Dragon's Lair, though, because yeah. I've heard reports of that game costing as much as a dollar. Well, yeah, but yet remember the technology that it had in it. The laser disc technology was very rare. It wasn't. It wasn't. Um, you know, it was the first game of its kind to use a laser disc. Which, if anyone remembers, they had that little fight. It was going to be the laser disc or something else, and the laser disc lost when it came to entertainment back in the '90s. But it, but I mean, it was just how beautiful it was. It saved a, it saved the arcade industry. Like 
because at the time the arcade industry was starting to go down and to have a game that came out that had a story had like a full-blown soundtrack and looked like a movie like that was the cool thing it looked like a movie it was like nothing else that you had seen it was you were playing a movie um it's still the only game that i ever raged quit It's that still holds that. I love the game. It's a gorgeous game. I love the music. I love everything with it. The sound acting, all of it. I still, that's still the only game I've rage quit. <laughs> Cause it's so freaking hard. Now your argument is uh, almost certainly correct. Dragon's Lair did play at least a major part in keeping arcades themselves relevant while the home console business was collapsing in 83 and 84. Mm-hmm. But the Laserdisc trend would not last very long. I did some research on this for a uh, for an upcoming entry on the blog to for, centered on uh, Dra- Dragon's Lair, and the Laserdisc uh, boom quickly went bust, both because Dragon's Lair was so popular, the the manufacturers of Laserdiscs. Laserdisc players could not keep up with the orders for that game, yeah, and also, yeah, and, and also keep their supply up for the home market, which they were struggling mightily against the VHS format at the time. And these early Laserdisc players were also some of the most finicky, failure-prone hardware you could put into an arcade. Especially since arcade games ran for anywhere from 10 to 12 hours a day. That's a lot of wear and tear on those early lasers. Oh, yeah. And and eventually they did kind of be able to convert it from the laser disc to other, other modes of transport. Um, not transport, but other, other ways of running it. But, I mean, it was, it, it was, a, it was a groundbreaker. Um, and like I said, it, it's a beautiful game. I recommend anyone who wants to play it, play it. Just be prepared to throw your controller. It's cheap, too. You can get that, the sequel, and uh, the spinoff Space Ace for the, pr- the price of a high-end indie game right yeah. now. And, and, and it's and... also worth mentioning that Laserdisc games did come back in the very early 90s. When they didn't have to worry anymore about competing with VHS because, well, they lost the war. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> they did. But you had not just Dragon's Lair 2 Time Warp, but you had a host of live-action Laserdisc games like Mad Dog McCree. And uh, I, I believe one game starred the notorious prop comic Gallagher. And Oh, yeah. there. Yeah, I think I remember seeing that one in Time Out in Runaquite Mall. And there were... Uh, and there were still others yet after that. I didn't realize this, but there was a Dragon's Lair 3. Really? Yeah, there yeah, is. Just, yeah, Curse of the... What is that? It's so small. Curse of the Mordred. Mordred. Oh, okay. Curse that of Mordred. Have... I think Came that was one of the only spinoffs. It was in... Yeah, it was Dragon's Lair 3, Curse of Mordred. It came out in 1993. Thank you, Wikipedia. Yeah, I I don't think that one got an arcade release, which technically puts it beyond the scope of this podcast, but the heck with it. We're we're used to tangents. Is this another tangent? 
Do I need to mark it? It's a half of one. Okay, I'm giving it a half to mark then. Well, don't worry. We'll find the other half of that mark. Right. Eventually. So. As far as Dragon Slayer 3 goes, it was released on the Amiga, the Atari ST, and the MS-DOS. It didn't see an arcade release, I don't think. No, okay. I don't remember this one hitting the arcade. I remember when Dragon Slayer 2 hit because there used to be... Oh, remember J.D. Ross... He had like a game. He had like a video game show where, um, they would actually talk about either per, they would talk about games that were coming out, and but they would then also talk about um, old games too. Because remember, he did one with Legend of Zelda too. It that would actually I think that would actually be the TV version of Game Pro. It might. I yeah. I'm not sure. I, I forgot what it was called, but I used to. It used to be like mixed in with by Saturday morning cartoons. And I remember right. when they showed the, the the clips, the the gameplay clips for uh, Dragons there too. And I'm like, oh. and then we went to Time Out, and I saw it there, and I'm like, oh my god, I'm gonna try this, and utterly failed. But then there was this one kid that would go there and he'd play it, and this kid was good. And I used to just stand and watch him play, so you could kind of watch the movie. Which my father kept trying to tell me was creepy. Oh, dear. You know, speaking of that show with J.D. Roth, I remember only catching one episode of it, but it actually featured a different laser game Mm -hmm. from Sega, coincidentally enough. The holographic game, well, quote-unquote holographic, Time Traveler. Either of you two remember encountering that in the wild? I saw it. I saw it at Strong. I remember seeing it as strong. It's not on the floor to play. It was up in the um, collections. Okay. But yeah. Oh, man. I forgot about that game. Linwood, yeah. next time you're in Rochester, we are taking you to the strong. Yeah, you need to because I have never seen this game before. Part of it, never seen it. It It is, it is a very, very interesting game. First of all, it's a very squat machine. I mean, I mean, uh, basically, the display kind of comes up to where uh, roughly the middle of my chest would be. And it's a small display, too. Yeah, it and is. You gotta see this thing to believe it. But the gameplay, dare I say, is even more limited than even Dragon's Lair was. <laughs> That was a very true statement. I remember, yeah. See, it is squat to all of you tall people, but for my short butt, it was the perfect height. Oh, don't call yourself that. I'm short. Your butt is quite tall. Not when you put me next to Frank, Chris Frank. Everybody is short standing next to Chris Frank. Fair enough. That is true. The one person Linwood did not meet the last time he was up here. Yeah, Chris is a giant. There's a reason why I, I retook, reclaimed my, the moniker of Mini Chris. Oh, dear. <laughs> There's Chris and Mini Chris. So, Linwood. All right, that's uh, the other half the of that reason. tangent. I knew we were going to get it in here. That's fine. <laughs> One of the main reasons I wanted to bring you on specifically for this episode is because you have experience with one of the most legendary arcades on the east coast of the United States, Chinatown Fair. (gasps) A little bit about that bad boy. Well, 
let's see here. If I am going to talk about Chinatown Fair, I need to talk about the history of fighting games in New York City. Absolutely. Let's have it. Okay. I'm like, ready to learn. It was the summer of 91. I was 10 years old, just finished fourth grade, and it was quite a magical summer. It was a summer that I went to Coney Island virtually almost every two weeks on the week and went with one of my best friends. We went down there. We spent all day Saturday playing arcade games, and we had yeah, you had your final fights, you had your magic swords, and what have you, but there was one game that ruled the roost, and that was Street Fighter 2. I think it was the the weekend of July 4th, when we went down there and we first saw it, and when we first played it, <laughs> we had no idea what we were doing, and we fought Dallasm. And Dalism kicked my so- kicked my rear end. And mind you, I had played Street Fighter the year before in my laund- in my local laundromat. When Dalism threw a yoga fire and burned me, I was like, what the heck just happened? So yeah, that was the beginning of a love affair for Street Fighter in New York and New York City. And of course the SNK games came. World Heroes was at my laundromat for year for like a couple years. It was the first fighting game I finished, like arcade mode style. I also ended up getting in trouble for that nice. too. Like how you guys got in trouble for it? Like you guys got in trouble for the bowling lesson in the miniature golf. I was supposed to get a haircut. I played oh, World Heroes. No. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you can't hide that one. <laughs> yeah, no, I couldn't hide that one. Um, <laughs> yeah, that's a long story. But the one thing that is very, the one thing that people need to understand about New York back at least from the '90s to like the late '90s is that New York was very, very fragmented. There were lots of arcades and lots of people playing, but there was no central base for most of the community. In fact, my first time playing X-Men vs. Street Fighter was back in 96, back at Times Square, when Times Square had those arcades. My friends and I were thinking, we're, we're hearing about X-Men vs. Street Fighter from the old AOL boards. We literally had to go that Saturday. We went that Saturday, and we were blown away by X-Men vs. Street Fighter. But now going into that, I segmented in the Chinatown Fair around 2000. And that was basically when Marvel vs. Capcom 2 came out. But... The time I was basically reeling the Chinatown Fair was 2001, 2002, with Capcom versus SNK, too. And that that was probably the game that I most competed at and mostly if I played there. Interrupt, if yeah. I can quickly interject, we need a new Capcom versus SNK game so badly. I think there's one coming out. I know there's a new King of Fighters coming out, but I haven't heard anything. Oh, you're probably thinking of the re-release of the Neo Geo Pocket Color one on the Switch. Yes. That, that... might be what I saw. Yeah, the, that's even available again as a miracle in and of itself. Yes, it is. I bought, yeah, bit of a tangent here, but not too. I bought a Neo Geo Pocket Color just for that game. I don't blame you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so do continue, Linwood. But yes, enough please. of that. Let's go back to Chinatown Fair. 
the one thing about Chinatown Fair by 2001 is that the best of the best, at least in New York City, went there. It was because at that point, most of the other arcades had closed. And you're coming to 2001 is when arcades were still a thing in certain places, but they were no longer as big as they were in the 90s. I think one of my mem- one of my best memories there was actually actually if I remember correctly, I actually did play I actually did play games with Justin Wong and Sanford Kelly. Oh my goodness. Whoa. Yes. I mean I at the very least recognize the first name. The other one I'm a little I'm not familiar with, but if you're mentioning that person in the same breath as Justin Wong, that must be a big deal. Yes, yeah, Sanford Kelly was huge. He was huge back in the day. But Justin, but going by Justin Wong, of course, Justin Wong beat me, beat me every single time, but I was able to take round. I was able to take characters off of him. That's probably my greatest arcade memory. Okay. But this is, yeah. So actually you'd get to play Justin Wong and (laughs) that wasn't, that was an experience. Wow. Now, uh, refresh my memory. Uh, what year did Chinatown Fair finally uh, shut its doors? Well, here's the thing about Chinatown Fair. Chinatown Fair, if I if I recall correctly, the old Chinatown Fair, as far as Chinatown Fair, that was big time in the fighting games and had a big time fighting game scene. The original Chinatown Fair, that that as we all knew it, was closed in February 2011. That was just right when Street Fighter 4 Arcade Edition came out. Well, that's rotten timing. And it did reopen and made it, it did reopen, but the Chinatown Fair we know that that's there now is not the same CTF that was there back in the day when you had when Marvel's Capcom 2 was starting to become a huge thing and carried the arcade for years. When people came back for Street Fighter Four to the arcade, when the when the first edition of Street Fighter Four came out, just before the home release came out, that time that Chinatown Fair is gone. There was another arcade called called Next Level. Now Next Level is, but Next Level is a little bit more as far as what we call. It was more of a it was more of a computer lab where you bring your own controllers, and they had and they had the system set up. You could bring your games. Okay. Mm-hmm. But but yeah, China, but honestly, Chinatown Fair was it was a magical place, just like Tahiti. Pretty much so, and. There were it was more than fighting games. It was legitimately oh, every type of game you could think of. Racing. Back when I first started going there more religiously, they had Scud Race. You can actually not they had Super GT or Scud Race. And they had it so you could play 15 laps on like the first track. So I got to play some time with Scud Race and I'm not sure. I really can't do Scud Race justice, but I can tell you, Super Scud Race Super GT, that was an experience as well. But beyond that, basically, Chinatown Fair was the first time I got to legitimately discover probably 
the final arcade craze before Redemption completely took over, and that was Dance Dance Revolution. Oh, yes. Oh, that, yes. that was the last hurrah. That I, I am... I have... Now, I'm not the stereotypical Whitey McWhite face in that I have rhythm. It just does not translate to my feet. I am notorious for... Well, I, I wouldn't say notorious because I don't... Nobody outside of my immediate circle of friends has ever heard me say this phrase, but I have two left feet, and they're both on my right leg. Let's just put it that way. But great taste in music. Oh, well, thank you. But if, if I tr attempted Dance Dance Revolution, I would probably make... I would, I'd probably go over the side of the rail... And then the people surrounding me would laugh and make references to uh, that that one uh, movie on Mystery Science Theater 3000 that that had Reb Brown screaming like a little girl. <laughs> the name of which I can't remember. It was the one with all the Battlestar Galactic Eclipse interspersed into it. Oh, um... oh this is embarrassing. As a Misty, I should know this one. So no Wilhelm. I know the episode. So no Wilhelm scream for you. No. no. <laughs> Sorry about that for those of you folks with ear with the uh, sensitive eardrums. <laughs> See now, Dance Dance Revolution. Um, for me, I because I I actually have a great deal of rhythm. At least that's what all my friends tell me. But because I used to when we used to play that game. Um, first time I saw it was at um. One of the um, um, her Horizon Fun Effects, and I used to, and I played it, and like I would beat my friends at it, like, and I'm like, it's it's not hard. You just gotta just gotta keep to the beat of the music. And then when they used to have it at Strong, because there always was a line to play it at Strong, when they had it out on the floor, um, and then I would go and play it because we used to do something called Summer Sun, where we used to get um, kids from the community coming in for kind of tours of the uh, tours of the um of the museum and stuff and with the teenagers the older kids that was like the one place to stop and they always the best way to bond with them was i used to play i used to play against them we used to have a, like just have a good time with it so i'm kind of the opposite of you james where i kind of rocked at that game it's one of the few games i rocked at um so but yeah, like, continue, Linwood. I'm sorry. I think we tangent again. No, that's per that is perfectly all right. So, I mean, we could literally do a full podcast on DDR alone because, and we probably will. Dance Dance Revolution was not. It was how do I put this. It was a reincarnation of Street Fighter or Street Fighter Two back when Street Fighter Two first came out. But DDR is more. DDR is legitimately more than just a game. It's legitimate. There's legitimately a full subculture, a full lifestyle around Dance Revolution. And as someone who fell out of DDR, basically back when I first fell out of the con scene in 2006, DDR was it was something else altogether. Well, it was it was immersive. It was fun. It was kind of like um, 
when the week came out and people, you know, and people really fell into cooperative play mm -hmm. with the Wii, where you could actually sit there and it wasn't like cooperative play, like, you know, um, oh God, like Gears of War and, um, oh goodness, Call of Duty, where, yeah, you, that was, that's cooperative play. You're talking with other people, but it was like, you were with your friends, you were in person with each other. And you were just having, it was like, you didn't have to think about it. You just went and you just played. You just had a good time. And I think that's one of the, that's one of the things that made it such a hit was anyone could attempt to dance. And if you happened to mess up, you know, you just laughed it off and just, you know, kept going, you know, or fall over the rail. Um, yeah. So and that's one of the cool, that's one of the things, as you were saying before, um, about, you know, arcade games had to kind of become more tactile and more immersive. But they, you know, but this was just a very simple game that had music on there and you had to just try to hit the buttons at the right time. And it almost paved the way for uh, Guitar Hero and how Guitar Hero took off. Yeah, that and uh, Konami's... Um, uh... What was the name of those? Oh, the one with the rapper dog. No, that 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 was a Sony game. Oh, never mind. Rap of the rapper. Though you are on the right track. Uh, there was a guitar game in arcades before Guitar Hero. Guitar came Freaks. On. Thank you, Linwood. Guitar Freaks. Linwood for the win. I knew you would know. Mostly because you told me about these games back in the day. But you know what else? As big, it's funny because as big as DDR is, as far as worldwide goes, it's not even the biggest B-Mining game in Japan at times. That title belongs to another title called Beatmania 2DX. Okay. I've heard of this one. I've never seen it in the wild, but I've heard of this game. Oh, well, Beatmania 2DX is basically, how do I put this? It's one part Guitar Hero, one part DDR, and one part another game that never really got the the sequels it needed to become really big, and that was DJ Hero. Mm. Uh, so let's uh, take this in a different track. Uh, our, um, our video games in arcades could often be these big loud, intimidating things. Was there ever an arcade game that scared either of you two? Um. Kind of a, kind of a left-turn question, I will admit. Uh, I may as well actually go first. Why don't you go first? Because I might need a moment to go for all the arcade games. I'm like, which one scared me? <laughs> the, the one that actually first had me... Uh, at least startled was Altered Beast. I know that sounds like an odd choice, but the game that game's attract mode featured this guy surrounded by flames and it looked like he was just cackling like a madman while having a seizure. And then right after that, you got this gigantic close-up of these eyes going back and forth. And it was just it kind of hit the uncanny valley a little too hard for me at the when I was uh, still less than ten years old. 
So yeah, as as silly as it sounds today, looking back at that very simplistic uh, derivative of Kung Fu Master, it was Alter Beast that uh, I would not go anywhere near when I was a kid. I had Sinistar. Oh, you and Pembroke have that in common. Oh my God. The second I heard that freaking voice, I was like going in the complete opposite direction. Forget that. And we will assert that voice in just a second. Beware, I live. I would totally nope out. (laughs) I was like, nope, not playing that. Nope, going away from That voice alone is freaking creepy. Um, the The one game I played and got freaked out playing was House of Dead. Because there are some jump scares, because there were a few jump scares in that game that I was not ready for. And that game had a big monitor, so those jump scares were doubly effective. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> I just, I, I, I got to the point, thank God that those, the, the gun for that was like, the one that I played was like, to the cabinet, because I would have dropped that thing and broke it. That's how much it scared me. Ooh. I was like, oh, no, don't. And then one of my friends like, it's not that bad. I'm like, nope, not doing that one again. Nope. Haunted house full of ghosts. Totally can do it. Playing a zombie game. Forget it. What kind of took away some of the scare factor of that game for me was one of the zombies bared more than a passing resemblance to John Tenta. <laughs> A.K.A. Earthquake of World Wrestling Federation fame. I didn't. I must not have seen that one because I'm pretty sure if I saw it, I would have probably dropped the gun laughing. Um, so I don't think I saw him. Now I kind of want to play it just to see if I could spot him. Linwood, have you thought of one? No, I thought of two actually. Okay. The first one was the Ocean Hunter by Sega. The reason why that game scared me is because when I first played, they had those closed cabinets and. You were literally going deep into the sea with no with, with natural light was pretty much absconded and muffled. And when I first played it, there was a shark that came out at me and scared the oh. living bejesus out of me. Oh. That, yeah. that would do it. Yeah. Yep. That would have terrified me too. I've been like, I'm out. <laughs> Goodbye. <laughs> Yeah, I li- yeah, I literally died after that. It was like uh, I could not recover. <laughs> no. Oh lordy. And the second game, and you might laugh at this because there's a full story behind it. One time when I was visiting my dad when he was in the hospital back in Pennsylvania, basically when we drove back, we we ended up going to a dive just to relax and get something to drink. And I saw it. I saw Haunted Castle. Oh. Oh. Oh, Oh, I know where this is going. Oh, no. Oh, no. Here's what scared me about it. It wasn't the zombies. It wasn't the actual, but it was just like, it's Castlevania. How bad could it be? (laughs) 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 whenever you throw that out there about a video game it's like the universe is like oh okay here we're gonna up the ante on this one i actually kind of did that with uh, resident evil 
like the first time I played Resident Evil on one of my friends on place uh, I think PlayStations, and I'm like, oh, it's it's this isn't so bad. You just gotta, uh, yeah. Kirsty never said those words and ever again when she played a video game. I learned those dogs still haunt me to this day because it was very hard for me to shoot them as a dog lover. Oh yeah, that's the jump scare involving the dogs. That. Oh my god. <laughs> <laughs> First time I saw that, I was like, "Oh!" <laughs> it's I put. I was like, "Nope, I'm out of here." I, I literally handed the controller to my friend. I'm like, "I'm out." <laughs> They're like, "It's not that bad." I'm like, "Nope." You having me shoot a dog? Nope, not doing it. I draw the line. I'll shoot people in the head. I will. That's fine. Shooting a dog? Forget it. Back to Haunted Castle really quick. The scariest thing about that game for me is the difficulty level. Yes, absolutely. Oh my god. I, I went over this when I did the special Halloween blog for over on Patreon for FC3. Mm-hmm. But I'm going to reiterate it here. A Castlevania zombie should not be dealing half your life bar in damage. <laughs> That was that that game was probably put out there for all those people out there that said, Oh my god, Castlevania, it's so easy. And then the developer's like, Here you go. <laughs> there is a long story behind the troubled development. It wasn't even supposed to be a Castlevania game in the first place. Nope. <laughs> this is gonna be a good one for another episode. Oh yeah. Stay tuned. <laughs> now another topic I want to hit up before we uh get to wrapping things up is the other famous brainchild of Pong creator and Atari founder, Nolan Bushnell, a pizzeria headed up by a rat in a derby. <laughs> yes. The man who created Pong also created the most infamous pizzeria place. Well, one of the two most infamous pizzeria places of the 80s. Because I was blissfully unaware of another competing franchise called Showbiz Pizza until just a few years ago when I fell down this rabbit hole with an animatronic gorilla wearing a spaghetti strainer on his head, talking about the noble colander. I swear I'm not making any of this up. No, I've heard about this too. I've heard and, about this. I kind of just taken out of my memory, but yeah, that, that does exist. And here's the crazy thing about these two competing chains. They would merge and show this pizza was actually the more successful of the two franchises, probably because the animatronics were of a higher quality, but the guy who created those those characters, the uh, Fax Geronimo, the, the aforementioned gorilla, and uh, the other characters of the uh, Rockafire explosion, when the companies were, con- were further consolidating, he did not want to sell his characters off. He wanted to maintain ownership. So they retrofitted his his animatronics that were still installed. They removed the traces of the character IP he owned and converted them to the Chuck E. Cheese cast. So even though that franchise was somewhat less successful, 
it still was the one that wound up lasting. Odd that. Eh, the world works in weird ways. I used to remember constantly asking my dad when it was like me and my dad. And I was like, Dad, can we go to Chuck E. Cheese for dinner? And we actually did end up, I did end up winning once and him actually taking me there because my father was a pizza snob. Oh, <laughs> that so, had to make it an uphill battle. It was. I used to use the lure of video games, though. Dad, they have video games. <laughs> Dad, they got video games. You don't have to get pizza. We just can go play video games. Come on. But then the one time he agreed, we went there and they were closed for uh, renovations. Oh. Oh. <laughs> so then we ended up going to one of our favorite um, hometown pizza places, one of the local businesses and getting pizza. You know. Oh, that worked out. Yeah, it did. Um, Chuck E. Cheese's Pizza. Remember, I live, I live in New York City. I live in Brooklyn. We have a pizza. Yeah, we have a tier list here. Your local pizza place, other pizza places. Then you go down the list. You have Domino's, but Domino's is more for the side dishes. Then you have Pizza Hut. Then you have Papa John's. You got frozen pizza. And you got Chuck E. Cheese. Now, now you see, here, here's me where I'm like, man, I would have put Domino's at the bottom of that list. <laughs> really the only like reason Domino's why Domino's pizza. is even saved is because of the side dishes. The pizza's kind of whack. True. Yeah, my, oh, my dad, when we used to do it, it would be like, okay... We do the local. We do the locally owned one, which was which in a, which where I am is Amico's, and they have amazing pizza and wings. Then you would go to Pontillo's, because it's slightly more locally owned. Then you would go to Marks or Guido's, Guido's depending who was open. Notice how these are all the locally owned changed. When I say my father was a connoisseur and he was thick picky, he was picky. If you went to Pizza Hut, it was because we had a free coupon for a personal pan pizza from the Amherst game or because Chrissy read all her books and turned them in. I'd read all my books. I just wouldn't turn them in. Um, and then Domino's was what you would feed to the dog. And at times, not even the dog would touch it. <laughs> But no, I mean, back in the 90s, Domino's was rubber tire nonsense. Oh, yeah. It still is. Like, they keep going, we've improved our pizza. And I've actually been in friends' house who loves it. And she ordered it one day. And I'm like, she's like, yeah, they improved it. I'm like, I took a bite. And I'm like, not enough. As a side note to that, I would put Rochester pizza against almost any other city but New York City or Chicago. You, you do not compete with those two cities for pizza. Well, you got to remember the Chicago deep dish pizza, by definition, really isn't a pizza. It's a pie. Yep. They say this, but Chicago pizza fans hate you for saying it. Yeah, it's a pie. It, it's, and that's it's why a... I'm not going to put it up against Chicago, because I don't want to get into that headache. <laughs> I will. I'll double down. Y'all, it's it's a pie. <laughs> Get over it. We Italians call it a pie. It's a pie in Italy. Let it go. <laughs> what about well, Chuck E. Cheese's? Right, I don't wait, know if this was the case in where you were, uh, Linwood, in Brooklyn or the greater uh, New York City area. But here in Rochester, when we were gro- when Chrissy and I were growing up, Chuck E. Cheese 
in the very early 80s had all the latest games. But then in the mid-80s, they still had the same games. And then in the late 80s, they still, they still had the same, same games. games. <laughs> and then and you had the Turtles came around and they finally got one more. New, new game. Now, if you wanted the newest games, you had to go to U.S. You had to go to the, the roller skating rinks. Mm-hmm. Oh, United Skates. United Skates. Um, um, what was the other one? Skate Town up here. You had to go to them. You had to go to them. You wanted the latest games. If you didn't go to the arcade, you went to the roller rink. But you couldn't go after. But you couldn't go after seven. But you couldn't go after eight o'clock because that's when all the crazies came out. Oh yeah. My childhood, like I, where I lived, we had a roller rink right across the street for nearly thirty years. Oh wow. Mm-hmm. And you're right. After like ten o'clock, you did not want to be in there because you went home. Yeah, that was when the crazies. That was when you said the crazies came out, and for us, that's when the drugs got 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 flinged out. Oh yeah. My mom, my mom used to my 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 sister used to ask to go with a bunch of girls. My mom would be like, "You're not going there." Not at this time of night. My sister used I, to hate that, but my mom was like, no, I know what went on there. I'm, she goes, trust me, I know what's going on there. You ain't going. I find it very interesting that Rochester had a generally earlier cutoff time for safe skating than New York City. 8 o'clock versus 10 o'clock. My goodness. Yeah. Rochester's whack. Well, considering you don't, well, again, remember Rochester also closes its bars earlier than most places in New York State. You know they got to yeah. get their full time in. Yeah, I guess everything's relative. Mm-hmm. Besides New York, New York City crazies, like they have to wait until the sun goes down before they come out. It's like the rule. Linwood, can you confirm that? Depends on where you go. Most this parts, yes. But if you go to East Village, you go to those places, even though it's no longer like that anymore, I can assure you that. When it was, like, the at, at the tail end of it, like, in the mid-2000s, they'd be out all the time. Mm-hmm. Well, that's the East Village. Like, that kind of that kind of goes without saying. It was the East Village. Mm-hmm. Plus, and also you gotta remember, but remember, it also depends on the level of crazy, too. And the type. So, one last question before we uh, put this topic to bed. Mm-hmm. Uh, is there any particular memory playing an arcade game of any sort that stands out in particular to you? I mean, I. I mean, Linwood already gave us a great one playing against uh, some of the pro players of fighting games in New York City. But, you know, if, if you want that to be yours, Linwood, that's A-OK. But if you got another one, by all means. Hmm, where do I go with this? Because there's plenty. I'll go to probably the last time I saw an arcade out in the wild as far as an old school arcade. And that was back in 2001 when I went to Ocean City. And 
playing Daytona Daytona USA two and actually winning a race. That was one of my favorite memories of all time because it was legitimately like I freaking did it. I won a race and won a race in a game where while winning was a goal, it was not the goal because it's an arcade game. It's, 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 it's like a slot machine about money, about a gambling aspect. You're not supposed to win most of the times. The fact that I actually got a win in a racing game like that will always stick with me. All right. Fair enough. I think um, the one that, that when I sit and I think about video games or arcade games was uh, the first time I went to Las Vegas, which ties into my father's comment about how casino this is actually for some here my dad talking about how casinos are just like arcades but for adults we were staying at the imperial palace and outside the convenience store that they have inside the imperial palace there actually was a game that you could play and it was like 10 cents and and i i loved playing the game because it was based off of one of my favorite bands at the time aerosmith Revolution, Revolution X. And I beat it by the end of our week-long vacation. But I was 18, so when my parents went into the casinos, and Las Vegas is very strict that when you are underage and you walk into a casino, you can't stop. You have to follow the carpet all the way to the end until you're out of the casino. So I always ended up getting stuck kind of by the video game, this video game machine, while my parents went in one direction to go gamble, my grandmother went in the other direction to go gamble, and here's me at 18 kind of stuck on the carpet and being told by security to keep walking. So every day I played that video game, and at one point my dad actually had joined me to play it too, um, which was really kind of cool. Um, and at that point I was 18, so I had a better appreciation of playing video games with my dad because when I was younger it's like dad's awesome and now it's like I could you know it just I you know now you could cooperatively play and it's like I could play with him on the same level as an adult and it was it was kind of cool and then later on I realized everyone tells me how sucky that game was and I'm like well that explains why I won I wouldn't say say it was that bad but then again I never played it myself but Haters gonna hate. But not bad for a video game, an arcade game that was based off of, you know, a band. True. It could have been the Journey arcade game. Oh dear. Yes, that is a thing that exists, or existed. But as for my memory, I've got a similar one to yours, Chrissy. In 1989, uh, all my cousins on my mom's side of the family were gathering for a, a, for a family portrait and and this this uh, photo portrait place was right across from Time Out, and that happened to be the very first day I saw the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles arcade game. And this was at the very height of Turtle Mania, and I was drawn to that thing like a magnet. And my Uncle Mike, after I had been playing for a couple minutes, actually came up and joined me and played with me for that in between... Uh, parts of the, of the family photo shoot. So that was probably one of, well, that was one of the few times I actually got to play an arcade game with a family member besides my dad and my sister who would, the last time I remember those two playing arcade games with me would be, be the X-Men arcade game, the big uh, two screen six player one. 
but uh, you know, I, I I adore my uncle Mike to this day, and I treasure that memory with him. So if you're listening there, Uncle Mike, uh, this episode's for you. Hi, Uncle Mike. <laughs> yeah, you guys will meet him someday. <laughs> what, I'm going to get him to, to FC3 at some point. I think he'd enjoy it. Yeah. So we are going to take a short break, but when we come back, uh, we are going to have our our sponsor information and where you can contact Chrissy and I. We're going to do This Day in Video Game History, and we are going to get things wrapped up. www.patreon.com backslash fc3roc we're part of the media division of flower city comic-con based in rochester new york we're a non-profit group everything we make off of patreon and everything else we do goes right back into putting on our future conventions and other events from reserving the facilities to bringing in guests if you pledge any amount even a slim dollar you will receive improved access to my blog entries where every Tuesday I go over current video game news and write retrospectives on old-school arcade games, all delivered conveniently to your inbox. There's plenty of other perks and rewards, and if you don't see what you're looking for, reach out to the crew. They'll be happy to work with you. Want to get a hold of us in particular? You can email Christy directly at k-r-i-s-s-i at fc3roc.org and me at j-a-m-e-s at fc3roc dot org. At the moment, we're still working out most social media matters, but we are indeed on Facebook at Gaming Street Irregulars. Chrissy and I are fairly frequently there sharing news and things we find cool, and begging, I mean asking, for your questions and answers to be used in upcoming episodes. Yeah, asking, that's the ticket. We love hearing from you all, whether you have praise, constructive criticism, or just want to share something cool and gaming-related yourselves. Also, wherever you find FC3 on social media, we're usually not too far behind, so if you reach out to them with something for us, they'll get it to us shortly. Legally speaking, all music, sound effects, voice clips, and so on are the properties of their respective owners. We make no claim to them and have no intention of profiting off of them. Please don't sue us. We have nothing you'd want. And welcome back, folks. We are getting ready to wrap up, and you know what that means. It is time for this day in gaming history. And coinciding with not just our general subject, but Linwood's extensive talk about the New York City fighting game community, today was the Neo Geo version release in both the United States and Japan of one of SNK's most artistically regarded works, both in terms of fighting game mechanics and its overall presentation, Garu. Mark of the Wolves. Wow, it was today? Damn. Yeah, it was, well, 
technically tomorrow, but as of the day of the of this podcast's actual release, it would be today, the twenty fifth. Yeah, and was... we just and we just doubted when we were actually when we actually filmed these things. <laughs> Naturally, <laughs> but yeah, that was the final game uh, in the mainline Fatal Fury series. Even to this day, as SNK is back on an upswing, they're focusing on their two biggest money makers, King of Fighters and Samurai Showdown. And since King of Fighters has the majority of the Fatal Fury cast in it. I don't think they're in too big a hurry to revisit that franchise on its own when they've already got King of Fighters to work on. True. And Linwood, you actually uh, introduced... My first play of that game was with you. I really wish I had more to say about Garou. It was one of my favorite games of all time. But unfortunately, that came out at a time where... The scene was mostly focused on Capcom games, particularly Marvel vs. Capcom 2 and Capcom vs. SNK 2. And when Garou came first came out, Third Strike was a thing. So I didn't really hear about Garou up until September in Game Fan. That's how okay. behind that's how behind I was in that regard because. That summer night, the summer '99 was really a third strike summer for me. That's why I played that game a lot. All right, but yeah, when you came to visit me in Fredonia in 2001, which is one of my most cherished college memories, you brought Garou with you, and I, at least I think you did. I and did bring it with me. It was, right. yeah, that that started like a four year love affair of Garou, where I played it quite a bit. And I believe that uh, same time was when I introduced you to Waku Waku 7. Yes. But, uh, but yeah. So, Linwood, if you're doing anything creative online, where can folks find it? Well, right now, I haven't really... I don't really have any projects going on right now because I've been legitimately so busy with my regular day job. But... There is going to come a point where I do get back into the game, and when it does, I hope to be back here on this podcast. I can tell some more people about it, but Ooh. I just want to say thank you for having me, and this was a great experience. Hope I get invited again. Once again, thank you very much. Uh, we will definitely be inviting you back. I'm not sure what topic off the top of my head, but, but it will definitely be something. Maybe it'll be import games. Maybe we'll talk a little more deeply into a fighting franchise. Maybe it'll be Sakura Tyson. Maybe it'll, it, maybe it'll be Daytona and other Sega Superscaler games, racing games, or what have you. But or just have I, you I, on here, or just have you on here, just to just to talk and and just have a good time. But as we say to all our guests, but it's especially true to you because you helped build this table, Linwood. You are always welcome at it. Indeed. Thank you very much. Yay! And on that happy note, for Chrissy Harding and Linwood Knight, I'm James Irish. Thank you so much for tuning in to Gaming Studio Regulars. And until next time, game on. Bye, everyone. See you out there, everybody. <laughs>